We're back with a bonus episode of Locked On Sooners, joined by our man, John Garcia, recruiting expert for the Locked On Network. We're going to talk Michael Hawkins. We're going to talk the SEC move and what it means for the Oklahoma Sooners and 2024 recruiting on today's episode. You are Locked On Sooners, your daily podcast on the Oklahoma Sooners, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Sooner Nation? Welcome to Locked On Sooners. Today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel. FanDuel is the official sportsbook partner of the Locked On Podcast Network. Go to fanduel.com slash locked on to get in the game. Make every moment more with FanDuel. Again, my name is John Williams. You can follow me on Twitter at John Nye Williams. My buddy here is Josh Helmer. You can follow him on Twitter at Josh on Ref. And joining us for like now like the third, fourth consecutive week, we got John Garcia, recruiting expert for the Locked On Network. John, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. It's a fun time of year to, to start turning that page to 24 uh, as, as that 23 dust is finally settled. So excited to get into it. Yeah. So the first thing we got to touch on is the biggest story of the last 24 hours, and that's the SEC or sorry, Oklahoma, Texas, the Big 12, the networks all have come to an agreement that Oklahoma and Texas will be going to the SEC for the 2024 season. So just starting off there, uh, were you surprised that this kind of came down after Last Friday, it seemed like all the talks had stalled. That was the report that it didn't seem like a move was going to happen. 2025 was going to be the, the actual timeline. But here we are less than a week later, and we've got uh, we've got a move. We've got an official thing happening. It's exciting. Yeah, I, I was a bit surprised because, like you said, there's been plenty of back and forth, right? Even from b- before the, the initial move was official in principle, we've seen so many different timelines and, and so much speculation that it's just good to get something concrete. So I think that's exciting. Obviously, there's advantages for both conferences with this move and accelerating the timeline. Look, if you're the Big 12, you're like, you're kind of trying to move on. It's hard because these are the two flagship schools within your conference, especially from a football perspective. But you really want to try to imagine, you know, the new Big 12. And obviously, football-wise, a lot of that is happening even before the SEC move. And obviously, from the SEC perspective, this is kind of the, this is the moment, right? This is the moment to say, hey, we've all known this that football starts here. The conversation starts here. Now it, it's like for sure. Like there's, it's tangible. There's no other um, counter to that conversation. Although the Big Ten with USC and UCLA will be fun and that will be the, the comparison to make going forward. This happening sooner with the SEC, though, I think is something that they're obviously really excited about. And, you know, the the casual fan or, or wherever I sit in me was always like, money can't be the issue here. Everybody can figure that part out. So the sooner the better. So in that light, I'm, I'm very excited. Although, again, I was surprised because there's been so much back and forth. So Oklahoma, John, obviously just reeled in a terrific 2023 signing class. And they did it as a member of the Big 12 Conference, though it's a pretty easy caveat or counter argument to make that, yeah, they, they did it as a member of the Big 12 Conference with the appeal out there, the selling point that, hey, we're, we're about to be in the SEC. So with all of that in mind here, the, the signing class that Oklahoma just brought in and yeah, it was as a member of a big as a member of the Big 12 how much does this help Oklahoma? What what does this move mean? Do you put stock into that? What does just the the jump to the SEC in general mean for Oklahoma recruiting? 
Yeah, I think we've obviously talked conference realignment so much over the last decade or so, but the teams that have moved into the SEC and can now pull from that caveat, like, look, it's the only conference where people root for the conference, right? So I think that cachet, that perception of of it meaning more, right, along with the slogan, does carry weight. Again, normally when we talk X's and O's and we talk matchups, like perception isn't important when we talk football, right? It's a game that has to be played, blah, blah, blah. But when we talk recruiting, perception is like everything. I mean, it really carries its own weight. So making what everybody will agree with as a step up into the SEC, actually making it, having that timeline locked in, it does change things because it changes your cell and it changes your ceiling. I think if if you're both Oklahoma and Texas, right? Now the road to any type of, excuse me, Sorry. Should I start over? Okay. So now the road that you theoretically have to take to any type of promised land is that much harder and that much more unquestionable. So that carries its own way. And then obviously the tangible, the winning, the NFL, everything that matters for Saturdays and beyond is just stronger there. So your ceiling for everything is higher, whether it's dollars that the administration cares about or certainly talent, which is obviously what the coaches care about most. And we saw so many examples of this when AM and Mizzou made that move to the SEC. Missouri hit the ground running and made it to the title game those first couple of years. And really there was a thought that, hey, this is going to be a pretty big deal. Unfortunately for them, uh, you know, Georgia was waking up right around that same time and it's been tough on the field. And AM, I mean, there's really, you can't deny the sec ceiling and how much that has helped AM from a talent acquisition and recruiting perspective they're the better example of course regionally when we look at um, ou in texas as well and they just wrapped up the number one class a, a year prior um, and had a shot to have another great class this year although on the field obviously they were held back so i i think that ceiling enables you to to be more ambitious to be more national though we've already seen OU turn that page. And I think the timing of bringing in this 23 class that already had as much Florida representation as Texan representation, which is a very big deal, we're already seeing those the fruits of that labor paying off and, and bringing in Brent Venables and some of these other coaches on top of that already creates more credence in that traditional SEC footprint, which Clemson always recruited so well. So it's a great time for all of this to sort of apex together and and yeah i think ou just has a higher ceiling in recruiting which is a big deal because it's already it's already a recruiting power right it's already a school that brought in what was it in the top five top three type recruiting class without the best on-field situation without something tangible to pull from in the short term so now when you expand and zoom out i think the ceiling is just that much higher and your talent pool is that much wider simultaneously so it'll be fun and I think that's the thing that has been talked about a lot, but you, you see all the SEC draft picks, you see how many of the you know five stars end up in the SEC, the four stars end up in the SEC. And not only does it create a high ceiling for Oklahoma, but it also improves their floor a little bit too. You know, Brent Venables, his first recruiting class, 247 Sports in 2022, the first, first recruiting class, it was number eight that they created within like two months. You know, right. they had the number four in 2023. 
And so then you're looking at it and you think, okay, yeah, it raises the ceiling, but you honestly can't get much higher than just behind Bama, Georgia, and Texas. You know, three of the perennial recruiting powers now over the last five, six years. So the ceiling doesn't get much higher until you start passing those guys. And yeah, I mean, you can definitely do that, but it also creates a really, really nice floor for you too. in that you're not going to probably fall out of the top 10 anytime soon because these players want to play the best competition so that they can create the best game tape possible to potentially improve their draft stock or improve their odds of getting drafted into the NFL. 100% competition is the word, right? That's what you hear. I mean, kids getting Vanderbilt offers. I mean, that that's what they're talking about competition. So imagine on the other end of that, I think the floor is a great argument to bring up here as well, John, because yeah, it's it's everywhere. It's every week. Um, again, we don't know how it's all going to be divided up and all that stuff, which will be fun once we figure that out. But almost no matter what, you're going to have uh, some big time opponents right out of the gate, whether it's geographically or in general with that conference. So, yeah, it's the competition you play. Schools have been living off of that as a counter to Georgia and Alabama and Texas A&M and some of the teams that are always near the top, your old misses, your Mississippi States, your Kentucky's Missouri's of the world have lived off of, Hey, come counter this, come play against these guys and showcase yourself. So now you're going to do that only to a higher degree with OU and Texas joining uh, there simultaneously. So that's a great point. The ceiling is up, but the floor is pretty secure as well. How much do you hear from uh, you're, you're down in Florida. So you talk to see interact with a bunch of these top Florida recruits. And I'm just curious, it felt like from the outside looking in, in that run, that first sort of string of championships that the sec, whether it was Florida a couple of times, and then LSU jumped in there, then you had an Auburn championship. And all of a sudden now the Alabama dynasty started, it was the sec sec reigning supreme in terms of national championships and it did feel like a lot of the high profile signees out there four or five star guys it was well i want to go play in the sec because that's who's winning championships do you still hear that a lot from from players in florida from these national southeast recruits or has that narrative died down a little bit how prevalent of a narrative is that that hey i want to play in the sec it's still huge um you 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 always kind of feel when if you're close to a recruit you feel when he hits a milestone from a recruiting perspective obviously first offer first fbs offer that's always a huge deal right that's the hardest one to grab once you grab that one it's a snowball effect then it's your first power five offer that one it brings extra juice from an excitement perspective but particularly with those kids in the footprint when you grab that first sec offer that one has kind of its own cachet around it uh so yeah that's still absolutely hits different relative to all of the other conferences, uh, particularly with certain positions. I would say more with defensive prospects, more with kids who are on the up and up as opposed to the ones who are going to have all the offers anyway. Um, but but those are the ones that progress in a short amount of time that become the gems of the SEC or wherever they end up. So, yeah, it still carries a ton of weight. Um, and, and when kids are making their final decisions, it seemingly carries that same amount of weight. Um, oftentimes, if there's one or two SEC schools and you, you wonder why they're in this final group, that comes up. Not only is it great about school program X, but now we're also playing in the SEC. So every day in practice, and it's not just Saturdays, every day 
in practice, you're elevating your competition to see where you stand. And that's something that has always stood out about the conference. And these kids are well aware of the national title ceiling and the NFL draft ceiling that comes with the SEC. That's where the numbers have backed up so much of that perception that it is the best football conference. So that's what they're most aware of. And and you got to think about it in their lifetime, especially when you talk about 23, 2024, the only schools outside of the conference they've seen win anything tangible at the top is a couple of Clemson titles and Ohio state. And that's it. So when you bring it back to OU, now you've got a connection to both ends of that spectrum with, with Venables and Bates and some of those other coaches. So uh, it really does matter uh, as, as the slogan suggests. And uh, I think that's not going away anytime soon. That's still very important in the recruiting process. So John, the 2024 recruiting cycle, Oklahoma is in the mix for several high value, high priority targets uh, in particular. Let's start with Williams and O'Neary. He has set a recruiting date or a visit date for March 4th in Norman. Uh, also going to be visiting Colorado. He's going to be a dude that's really on everybody's radar. Everybody that's at the top of the recruiting rankings is going to be pursuing this guy. So tell us what you think about Williams and O'Neary and kind of how he stacks up in the 2024 cycle. Yeah, he's probably, I would say in the last six to 12 months, he's probably the biggest riser in how we view the class of 2024 individually. This was a kid who was kind of just figuring things out a year or two ago, um, but everything has clicked and his tape from 2022 got out and everybody's jumped in. People are still jumping in like in the last week or so with with new scholarship offers. I think Texas and Colorado are the last two you mentioned Colorado's already going to set up a trip for him to, to go see Dion out in Boulder. So yeah, he's kind of the the trending up recruit compared to a David Stone who's been that guy for 2-3 years now, right? So uh, you're going to get a lot of love either way, but it's just different when you're on that rise and and everybody recognizes it kind of simultaneously. So Nwerni, he just brings that modern presence as an inside out pass rusher, a guy with great a great athletic foundation. But one of those frames where you're also like, man, I could I could push this in different directions and feel good uh, about my prospects as a coach. So naturally, uh, his offer list has gone crazy and he's been reciprocating that with a lot of visits. Uh, we just saw him at Oregon. Uh, he was at, uh, of course, Missouri, the, the home the home state school uh, for him being from the St. Louis area recently as well. Um, and he's going to take a bunch of, of other trips, Colorado and Oklahoma are are the next couple up, but he wants to take more beyond that as well. So I do get the sense that this thing is pretty wide open right now, uh, which is probably good news for, for the newer schools involved uh, for him. Um, but obviously, every single visit starts to change a little bit uh, of that perception. So obviously important for any school to get him on campus, even though he is so well-traveled. So this will be a, a fascinating recruitment to track. Typically, these risers kind of do everything in one shot. So like you're, you're riding that wave of increased interest. You, you start to collect offers, take visits. And then before you hit the downturn of that, you start narrowing that list and, and sometimes make a decision all kind of in one move. So there's no official timeline for him. Nothing I've seen that's tangible. Hey, on this date, I want to come off the board. But typically when you feel that rise, there's a, there's a lot of momentum. Uh, towards you know figuring this thing out so any visit he has planned going forward is a big one including of course OU there I believe on March 4th uh, the date that's set I'm assuming that's first weekend of spring ball so the timing there 
is really great because a lot of programs are opening up spring ball that weekend. So for him to pick Oklahoma when you know he's got 25, 30 invitations, that's a big deal. So I've got two for you here, two more on Winery. I'll just combine both of them. Missouri, we know, home state school, along with Oregon, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Colorado, as you mentioned. How serious of a player really is Missouri with those other schools? Is there a little bit of a home state courtesy being applied there? Or do you see that as a legitimate factor with the others? And then Winery, as you discussed, the frame is interesting because it feels like the evaluators out there aren't totally sold that he's an inside guy or an outside guy. So uh, is Missouri a serious player here? And do you see Winery as more of an inside defensive tackle type or an outside type? Yeah, that, that latter part's a great question because I'm in that same grouping of people that I'm like, I could see it working both ways. And nowadays you you allow the skill set to dictate the position projection more than we ever have relative to the frame. It used to be, hey, whatever this frame position grouping is in, whatever tier you're in, you're just kind of pigeonholed there. But in the NFL, we're watching like a Chris Jones at 315 pounds coming off the edge on occasion. So I think he can be an inside out type of guy where you're moving him relative to down distance and scheme and sometimes even uh, the opponent itself. So depending on how he fills out, I think some of those questions will be answered during his senior season. But for now, he really does feel like a tweener, which used to be a negative thing. It used to carry a negative connotation, but now it's a plus because now we can move you around. You can stand up, you can put your hand in the dirt, you can move inside and just be quicker than these interior linemen, but still powerful enough to deal with, with the tackles and tight end groupings that you're going to face while working the edge. So that's a good thing. I think that's something that helps his recruiting ceiling and and brings more uh, schools involved with him, uh, regardless of scheme, because he's got some versatility. And then with Mizzou, until we hear otherwise, I'm going to take it seriously. I, I think the Tigers have done a good job keeping kids close to home. It's one of those schools that doesn't have to go outside the footprint a ton. If they, if they, combine St. Louis with the traditional Big Ten Midwestern footprint, they can grab, you know, some really strong football players. Um, and they've been able to win some key battles for St. Louis area guys uh, like Luther Burden. I mean, I think once he made that decision, it felt like such a flag planting moment for Mizzou because he was that local guy that everybody thought was going to, to, to Bama or to Georgia or one of these other schools. So winning that one kind of creates a precedent and allows you to maybe have a higher ceiling with those guys closer to home. The the only counter to that for me are the visits. He's not, he is well-traveled in general, but he hasn't been to Mizzou like a, like 50 times. It's not like he came up going to Missouri games and, and that's like this whole long entrenched thing. I do think if you, you look at the actual visits, you're a little bit surprised to see that. Yeah. Missouri's among the most frequented, but it's not by a wide margin. So I think that, probably uh, keeps folks aggressive around him um, and and probably shrinks some of the perception of Missouri's chances. But, you know, until he starts to narrow this thing down, uh, you're going to feel like Missouri's in good position. And look, from, from a D-line perspective, that's one of the spots that Missouri's had a long history of success. Really everywhere in the front seven, Mizzou has been able to develop and, and shine on Saturdays and push those guys into the pros. So if, if he was playing, you know, quarterback or a different position, maybe I would put a little more courtesy feel into it, but in the front seven, Mizzou's track record is, is really strong relative to, to what it's on field uh, status is. So for now, I'm going to give Mizzou the benefit of the doubt um, until we hear otherwise.
speaking of the defensive line, I want to throw a bit of a kind of curveball at you. I know we're going to talk about one other guy, but being from Florida, being from the Tampa area, I want to ask you about Xavier Porter, a teammate of Lewis Carter at Tampa Catholic, a guy that the Oklahoma Sooners have offered. Tell us about him a little bit, what's his game like, and, and what could he bring to the next level? He's another fast riser. He's not one of these guys that two years ago, like a Lewis Carter as a freshman was pulling in scholarship offers. Not quite the same here. This is more of a recency deal and kind of he had the breakout season. I think at Tampa Catholic, you're always moving guys around uh, because it's even though it's you would think, oh, Tampa, huge area. This is a private school, a little bit smaller. You got more guys working both ways. So you're going to move players around relative to that, relative to your needs. So we did get to see him move around a little bit. But, you know, when you're talking downhill, the instincts are, are kind of off the charts here. He's got good length. Um, haven't seen him recently. So I want to get that updated look uh, at the frame to see just how much he can potentially fill out. But right now, um, I think you treat him like a conventional, raw, athletic pass rusher whose uh, ceiling is is still TBD at this point. But obviously, what he put on tape in 22 is enough for a lot of schools to start jumping in. And he's the type of kid that I think has a big spring when more schools come by to get that fresh, updated look. Because if we're talking about it, these schools have been talking about it for, for weeks and months on end. Uh, so he's one that we need to get eyeballs on again. But obviously, there's... There's a bit of a trust b- between Venables and and Jarrett McIntyre, the head coach there at, at Tampa Catholic. He really pushed Carter early uh, in his own recruitment, and and some folks were in, some folks were out. So the schools that didn't mind his smaller, more sawed-off frame were ones that his coach was going to really you know, kind of latch on to and give the benefit of the doubt to. So I think OU is going to have as good a shot as any school of pulling him out of the state of Florida, uh, although McIntyre is, of course, uh, an Auburn grad who very much still pulls uh, for the Tigers there. So that'll be a conventional SEC battle when all is said and done, in my opinion. Two final names that Sooner fans definitely want an update on. The the first being David Stone, the the second being Mr. Hawkins. What uh, What is the update? Is there an update with those two's recruitments? Where Where does it stand for Oklahoma for both David Stone and Michael Hawkins? It's very similar, right? You've always felt good about both. And then other schools are pulling at that consistently. Obviously, Michigan State is that school for David Stone. He took another trip up to East Lansing. And, you know, when David gets on the microphone, he's going to make you feel pretty good. And there's certainly a lot of that going down in, in East Lansing right now. I think if he set an immediate timetable for a decision, you'd really start to feel good about Michigan State's chances to pull the upset. But again, there's there's really nothing tangible that says, yes, hey, uh, March 1st, I'm coming off the board, anything like that. So that hometown vibe that Oklahoma has always given him tangibly and now you know, relationship-wise as he continues to build with this new OU staff, I think time will be on, on the Sooners side there. Although, again, you're talking about maybe the number one true interior lineman in the country on the defensive side. So naturally that race is going to continue. And surprisingly, schools are still getting in on David Stone. He's picking up like new offers over the last couple of weeks. So you never know how that will start to factor in. He's a pretty well-traveled kid as well. So you expect him to continue to take visits, but almost no matter when it ends, OU is going to be at or near the top of his list. And I kind of get the sense that whenever he does commit, if it's not Oklahoma, this thing will be viewed as 
a pretty strong upset. So that will be fascinating to track going forward. But I'm never going to think OU is losing a ton of ground with with David Stone until I hear otherwise. Um, again, other schools are trying. Michigan State, Miami, Ole Miss just offered. Uh, but until we hear otherwise, I think OU is in a good spot. And then with Michael Hawkins, kind of the same deal. Another school's pulling now. TCU is is becoming a very easy to sell pick for him. Not only with what they did on the field in 22, but of course you, you bring on Kendall Bryles, who he already had a pretty strong relationship with when he was at Arkansas. And remember, we were viewing this recruitment as, oh, use the favorite legacy, all that stuff. But if anyone's going to pull it off, it would be Arkansas, even though his top group was much bigger than two schools. Uh, but now TCU kind of has that feel where if he's going to end up anywhere else, it's going to be TCU with that combination of, of Sonny Dykes and Kendall Bryles. So Getting that visit recently uh, has also pushed the Horn Frogs further because, to the surprise of me, I saw that Michael said that he hadn't really vetted TCU to that degree. Uh, so he'd taken visits there, but it hadn't been like the full visit experience. Let me see everything, which really kind of shows you the interest. So clearly it's picking up from that TCU perspective. But again, it, it still feels like the ball is in Oklahoma's court. Um, the only difference is we did have a tangible decision timeline. For Hawkins, you know, January 31st was supposed to be the day he pushes back on that. And now we're kind of all like, is it going to happen just randomly or is this something that's going to be set up? I do think, though, the difference between Hawkins and Stone is people feel like the door might be cracked open a little bit with Hawkins. So I'm wondering if other schools try to get in, especially when they see what TCU has done in a short amount of time to rise up his theoretical list. You wonder if other schools are trying to bring him in. And this is kind of the beginning of that visit season, right? Spring ball starting up. We just talked about it with Nawarney uh, visiting on March 4th. There's a lot of spring windows that are going to open up in the month of March. And Hawkins has said he's planning on taking some visits. So naturally, if that is the plan, at least in the short term, you expect them to get to a couple more campuses before that decision comes in. The question then becomes, who, who is he visiting, right? Who's trying to make a late push here? Because again, as we keep looking around and we talked about this last time, these 2024 QB dominoes are flying. I mean, these kids are committing in relatively short order, right? Walker White off the board to Auburn, which was a big, you know, strike uh, against Arkansas, you know, in-state uh, quarterback, number one quarterback in that state. Um, Rutgers got a quarterback commit the other day. I mean, this thing's starting to snowball uh, in the 24 class to where these quarterbacks feel like they got to claim their spot sooner rather than later. So I do think Hawkins will come off the board this spring. It's just a matter of how deep into the spring it gets and who becomes that other school. Can Arkansas make up some of the ground that they clearly lost? Um, or is TCU going to be viewed as that primary contender until Hawkins uh, picks up a hat and, and goes public with the decision? It's going to be a fascinating recruitment to watch because there, there's some also extenuating factors going on with Michael Hawkins and his family that also could delay yeah. this recruitment and delay a commitment as well. And so uh, we'll continue to track that. We'll, we'll track all these guys for you here on the Locked On Sooners podcast, and we'll have John back to give us more insight as the 24 cycle continues on. But that's going to do it for today's episode. John, thank you so much for, for being on with us again. Uh, we'll have you back soon to, to give us an update as spring visits and spring ball gets going. But thank you so much for subscribing to the show, wherever you get your podcasts. Also go to YouTube, hit that subscribe button, hit that notification bell to let you know when new episodes drop. But until next time, we got John Garcia, Josh Helmer. I'm John Williams. We'll talk to you then. Boomer sooner. <laughs>